All right. What's up, podcast listeners? I'm back. It's been a while, but I'm back. Uh, this will be episode 41. Uh, today I wanted to talk about galleries um, and the art business, the business of selling art. Uh, uh, I'll start um, with my graffiti years because uh, that kind of set the precedent for my mentality re- regarding galleries ever since. Um, in 1989, I started writing graffiti in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and it wasn't but maybe a year or so later, uh, that I befriended a graffiti writer from Brooklyn named Agree, and he had been fully engulfed in graffiti culture in, uh, New York City in the 80s, and, uh, brought that mentality with him, um, and, you know, was able to explain a lot of the politics and things involved in graffiti writing to me uh, pretty plainly and clearly. Uh, I'm trying to think. I mean, as soon as he started uh, dropping the science on me about who were the fundamental writers, uh, you know, uh, people like Futura, who had done really abstract work, on uh, the subway trains, uh, but also painted uh, canvases and whatnot. And uh, there was kind of a a division among the street-level graffiti writers uh, in New York in the, I suppose it was the early 80s when the first kind of graffiti boom in the uh, gallery and museum world happened. Uh, And a lot of the graffiti writers who had been writing on subway trains um, really thought that that was the quintessential form of the art, was for it to be done illegally, mostly at night, on the subway trains. So you would see your artwork and your name rolling, literally, moving around the city, uh, connecting with the city, you know, and in in that way, connecting with all the other writers. Um, So graffiti writing was, in its pure form, just for graffiti writers, other graffiti writers. It wasn't a thing for the public. Um, You know, I, I would say, you know, maybe a, a tenth of the uh of the the fame i don't know how to explain that it's li- it's like you know if you're out there doing graffiti and you're doing it for other graffiti writers you're really not concerned about what the public thinks about it uh you really don't care at all uh so when galleries started to see an opportunity to capitalize on the art form that was evolving there, uh, you know, they pitched, you know, that we can be a step out of the the subway system and out of illegality and into the comfortable world of white walled galleries and making cash for your for your art. Uh, you know, so so a lot of the real hardcore known. Uh, famous graffiti writers at the time 
were like, fuck galleries, uh, fuck museums. This isn't for them. It was never for them. And why should they make money off the back of the fame and notoriety that they've that they've built uh, working on the street illegally? Uh, it seemed like a, a shit deal on, on a certain way. And also, you'd end up selling your canvases uh, to people who were just investors. Uh, they were people that probably didn't really even care about your history as a graffiti writer or, you know, the trials and tribulations you went through. They just saw, oh, this is the hot new thing. If I buy in on this early, I'll be able to uh, make a great return later on. Because, again, they're not trying to buy art because they like it. <laughs> in a lot of cases that's a unfortunate reality to this day which i'll get into a little bit more later so th throughout the early 90s um i was writing graffiti and uh, again getting schooled by agree about all this this kind of stuff about you know keeping it real on the street or taking your stuff to the next level and taking it to galleries and museums and all that <clears throat> and uh I guess in the, I guess this was probably about 1991 in Albuquerque, New Mexico. I was asked to participate in a city-sponsored mural on the west side of Albuquerque. Um, and it got a lot of press, and it got me connected to a lot of, like, legitimate mural artist folks in that, in that area. Um, and not long after that... I, th I think this was the first time I was invited to show work in a museum or gallery or, or anything like that, um, other than stuff I did as a little kid that, where I showed drawings at the state fair, which I definitely did, I, sh I should say. <laughs> I guess that's really where it started. Um, but in any case, uh, right around 1991, the Albuquerque Museum wanted to do a show about murals, uh, specifically murals in Albuquerque and the history of it and the traditions and the different styles and uh, all that kind of stuff. And I was included in it. And I was included, you know, to feature my works, my graffiti works, um, some of which had been painted illegally. But I, I think what I did was show uh, photographs um, Anybody from the, the 90s remembers the connector photos that we would make with film cameras where you would stand, let's say, 15 feet uh, from the wall and you would photograph the left section of the wall and then you would step over about 15 feet and try to keep yourself, again, exactly the same distance from the wall as for the first photo and then you shoot a second photo for the middle of the wall and then you step another 15 feet to the right and you shoot a third photo. And then when you'd get them printed out, you would connect them uh, with tape so it made kind of one long fluid uh, print um, as best you could. And some people got really good at it. Um, I got pretty good at it myself. Um, and that's what I ended up showing at the Albuquerque Museum. I, I might have shown some uh, drawings and things too. Um, but that was kind of a big deal. I was in college. Um, I was studying architecture. 
I had no real idea that my life would take me off into more of a fine art direction versus the architecture studies. Um, I didn't think any of the work I would do as a graffiti artist would be recognized by, again, the, the general public, much less kind of a artistic museum going uh, kind of crowd. Um, but that was really enlightening. Um, in, let's see, 93 uh, is when I moved to San Francisco in October. And again, uh, as soon as I got there, I went to all the museums and all the galleries, and I just tried to soak it all up and see what was happening. But definitely felt like, as a graffiti writer, it wasn't the scene for me, um, and I might be able to get inspiration from that world and you know, cultivate friendships with people in that world, but I was just out of that system. And I really didn't have any interest per se, in showing in galleries. Like, I never asked um, a gallery for a show. I always uh, just relied on them to come to me. And I think that's been a good policy through the whole thing. Um, I guess I could get into that a little bit right now. So let's get into the, the business of it a little bit here. Um, you know, to me... The only reason you'd want to work with a gallery is because, first of all, you don't have any way to sell the work yourself, uh, for one. Uh, I guess second might be, um, well, and again, that's where the gallery can help because often galleries uh, have, let's say, like a stable you might say, of people that are collectors. And within their stable of collectors, they know that certain people like certain things. And if their uh, livelihood depends on the sale of artwork, uh, they can't help but uh, in some way cater to their collector base. Uh so it can be helpful for a new artist to get representation from a gallery because you can put your work in front of collectors' eyes who the gallery owner knows have already bought work before. And a big part of a, a gallerist's job, too, is explaining to a collector uh, why a certain piece of art might cost a hundred dollars whereas something the same size um, in, in a similar you know uh, medium might cost a hundred thousand dollars from another artist uh, so there's a lot of like what I would think of is is trust involved in that exchange that the collector has to trust that the gallerist is being straight with them about the value of this thing because really it might just be a piece of paper that's been marked with some ink you know in the case of like what I do it's just a piece of paper marked with 
magic marker to be honest i'm a i'm a magic marker artist <laughs> you know and you tell people oh this is made with a sharpie you know often people will laugh because it's not a fine art tool it's a very cheap uh you know utilitarian tool that i think everybody is familiar with just for writing on boxes and whatnot it's uh so it can be you know kind of funny to show people one of my drawings and tell them, oh, I get $1,000 for these. And they look at me like, what the fuck are you talking about? But again, it's just, you know, value. Uh, and th that will fluctuate. And again, if you're, if you're selling your art to your friends and you know that they can't really spend more than $100, um, you know, that, that's a certain collector base, you know. The thing with galleries is that they might be able to put your work in front of collectors who are used to spending, you know, 1000 to $10,000 on a piece of artwork, you know. And often, too, you as the artist might not have a lot of confidence in your work. But if you can find a gallerist that has confidence in your work, and is able to sell it, um, I think that can be a wonderful arrangement between a gallerist and a and, a, and an artist. Um, the, a, a big part of the art business is the percentage. It's really normal for uh, the gallery to take 50% of the sale price of the artwork. Um, now, whether or not that's worth it depends on a lot of things. Um, you know, I mean, first of all, within their 50%, they should be covering framing, um, transportation of getting the artwork to and from the gallery, um, the shipping of sold artworks should be taken care of on their side. All promotional costs uh, should be taken care of on their side. Uh, I'm trying to think what other kinds of stuff, you know. Again, it's uh, it's it's a it's a tricky enterprise because if you get let's say a solo show which sounds fantastic, but it might take you, let's say six months of diligent work um, to create enough pieces to fill a small gallery at, with, within six months. Now during that six months, so during those six months, you might not be able to have a day job because you've got to work so hard on the art. Um, so, you know, that that can be sketchy in and of itself to go for six months without having any money coming in. Now, some of the bigger, more famous galleries, once you're already famous and making money, they may, you know, give you uh, uh, some money up front to pay for living expenses for six months to a year so that you can just put your head down and create work uh, you know for the show but again it's because they have uh, confidence that they can sell your work already 
now for the you know early the starting artist you know where let's say it's your first solo show um you work for six months you get all that work done you put it up you have a great opening lots of people come it's super fun uh you're still broke (laughs) um and then after 30 days it turns out the gallerist wasn't able to sell anything because you don't have any sort of track record just yet as far as how much your work is worth or how fine it is you know um and you might come out of that you know seven months then later and find out that you don't get anything and you get your artwork back um which happens a lot you know and i think that's why a lot of people will try to jump into the art game and get a gallery show and the first one will flop like that and they just flat out can't afford to just keep pounding through you know that's why a lot of people um especially you know trying to jump into doing art full-time you know you're still going to have to have your part-time job and doing your or full-time job frankly and doing your art on your side and just trying to plug away at it as much as you can and give it its due um you know that's that's a, a big big part of you know the bummer of the the whole system is that you might start a body of work and you might not see a nickel coming back for could be eight months in total um, before you see any money and uh, again people are these days are kind of living month to month paycheck paycheck to paycheck and to to go that long and not have anything coming in you know the other thing that uh, galleries want is exclusivity of of course they don't want you selling to other galleries um, which can really end up fucking you too early in your career when you've already agreed to work with a certain gallery that gave you a break um, but really can't sell your work worth the shit um, but loves it you know and you're getting opportunities from other galleries that could probably actually sell your stuff so inevitably it leads to uh, broken relationships and you know that that's the business of it unfortunately if you've got to make money um yeah that's just how it goes you've you've got to kind of move on from one opportunity to the next i think uh on a certain level uh the uh, uh the loyalty that uh some artists uh especially around me have shown to galleries that really never uh, did a great job for them. Uh, I don't see the intelligence in that, <laughs> you know. But to each his own. To each his own. Um, so again, in the '90s in San Francisco, there was a lot of art stuff going on. There were uh, some graffiti artists even that were transitioning into the gallery world and the museums uh in particular was uh barry mcgee uh who writes twist uh in the early 90s and mid 90s he was just killing it uh in the museums and whatnot and kind of has continued to kill it in that scene um interestingly though with him (coughs) Uh, he 
seem to exploit the museum system more than the galleries. Um, museums are different um, because they make their money by selling tickets, uh, not selling the actual artwork. So often um, you'll negotiate a flat fee for the show um, and write out a contract and, and that's that. So that you then deliver the goods, work with the museum staff to hang everything, get it all done, and then you're done. You're good. Um, and at the end of the run of the show at the museum, you'll get the work back. Or uh, they might buy some of it for their permanent collection. That's another thing that museums do. They'll, they'll definitely buy work. Um, I've had a few friends have uh, directors of museums come and buy everything they had in their studio for, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars on the spot. Um, that can be a, a really wild uh, uh, thing to see uh, from my perspective as kind of more of a street-level uh, graffiti guy, you know, thinking I'll never really make any money uh, doing anything, you know, at least with, the, with that galleries and museums. Uh, I wanted to, let's see, I, I really didn't do any shows Again, it was this whole thing about the street-level graffiti not really... Uh, maybe it's it's not supposed to be in museums and galleries. So I kind of... I, I was really sticking with that kind of. And um, in 1994, I was invited over to the offices at High Speed Productions, which makes Thrasher magazine. But at that time, they were... Uh, founding uh, Juxtapose art magazine and I think this is just a, a good example of where things were at between the graffiti world and the gallery world at the time because uh, I, I met Robert Williams and his wife that day and uh, they were just talking about what kind of art they were going to put in uh, Juxtapose and some of the people from Thrasher invited me over to talk to them maybe about including graffiti in juxtapose and uh mr williams was completely against it at the time he really hated graffiti i think he it was just in la it got so tagged and so destroyed I'm, I'm sure it just really pissed him off as kind of a an old timer and also a a fine artist you know that tries to make really beautiful things and here's all these teenage kids just writing garbage all over his beloved city <laughs> you know but I of course stood up for the the writers you know the style writers the people that were doing really intricate pieces and the whole culture of style writing all over the world and was like I think it's kind of stupid if you're going to start a new art magazine that's going to feature art outside of the usual gallery and museum system and not include graffiti that that just seems stupid um they they did fight me over it for a long time but eventually i think maybe even within the first year of juxtaposes uh publication that, that they started to include some graffiti um but again it was uh it it, it was just these very different scenes um in Around, I guess this was in the late 90s, 
uh, I had uh, a friend named Damon Soul, still a good buddy. Uh, he was doing, I think he was the one that was the initial connect on this, but he was showing drawings in frames, small stuff, in a really, really nice uh, hair salon frequented by women, um, really wealthy women that were spending, you know, hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of dollars on their hair and like spa treatment and stuff. And the the girls that owned the place were really cool and down with us and would go drinking with us and shit and thought, you know, the kind of street level artist people were cool and they were like, you know, can we put some of your artwork up in our salon and see if some of these ladies want to buy it? And sure enough, it hit. It was great. Um, the ladies were mostly buying our drawings for their teenage sons. <laughs> which was really cool because you know we were still that's the thing it was it was early on nobody had really given us uh nobody was trying to hand us out uh art shows and stuff you know we were doing uh these really like i remember we did a show at a bar in the tenderloin um that was i think just a one night thing you know the the it was the those were those early years it was really uh a new thing you know we even at that point at let's say 99 i'd been in san francisco for six years and really hadn't cracked the the gallery scene just yet um and you know again i wasn't all that interested <laughs> to be honest uh in 2000 i was living with damon soul and he was like, hey, do you want to go to a fecal face party? And I was like, fecal face? What the fuck kind of party are you taking me to, bro? <laughs> and he's like, nah, it's this like arts website and they throw parties and all the artists, you know, it's it's cool. It's a great place to meet meet new people and put a face to the, the work that you've seen on the street and that kind of thing. And uh, I remember going and it was super popping. It was, I met so many people um, those that at that first uh, fecal face party that I went to, um, a lot of people that ended up becoming the A-list uh, of the gallery world uh, even today. Uh, but again, we were still kind of on the fringes as the graffiti kids. Um, on my exhibitions list on my website, it goes back as far as 2000. Uh, and that's where I can kind of get a little specific about my history, but also kind of give a little anecdotes about how those things went down and how the gallery world operates differently uh, from back then and try to give you a sense for how it changed and how, you know, the old way of thinking about uh, galleries and museums is really kind of outdated. But in any case, in, in February of 2000, I did a show at a place called Juice, uh, which was like a graphic design firm. It wasn't even like a official gallery at all. It was just these group of guys that were really fucking cool and were doing really cool uh, ad campaigns for different like skate brands and action sports stuff. And they were super friendly. They had a cool pool table in the back and didn't mind if you smoked weed inside and it was fresh and they had um a lot of wall space um within their 
office uh separating different offices and spaces within the building so and and it was kind of an open plan so you could have a few hundred people in there and it wouldn't get too crazy uh but that was uh that was a really f uh big show uh, i remember i showed with uh, it was a show of artists uh sketchbooks it was called sketch and so each artist uh showed a book that was like bolted down on a pedestal so that people could uh, flip through the book and then there was an artwork above each person's book um, you know that might relate to the book or not uh, but it was a super a-list uh, remember Chris Duncan was in that show God, there was so many cool people in that show but that was that was super popping again not a real gallery per se I think they may have given us they might have given us all the money from the sales of the artwork uh, simply because it was a design firm and they were they already had the rent covered for the space so they weren't relying on the sale of the artwork uh, to pay the rent and I think that's another huge huge issue to consider uh, when considering which uh, galleries to represent you uh, there's a lot of galleries that are owned by wealthy people, basically, um, that can afford to just rent uh, a blank space uh, to show artists. And often they feel like they're doing the art world a big favor uh, by breaking new artists. And, you know, uh, but in the end, um, because they're not relying on the sale of the artwork uh, to pay their rent, they don't really have any vested interest in selling the artwork. Uh, they have like the least amount of hustle and uh, sales pitch uh, to people. They, they just flat out just they can do fine if they don't sell any of your artwork. So again, if you're hooked up with one of those kind of galleries and you just spent six months of your life making the work and then it works shows for a month and then they still have another month to pay you and it turns out they didn't sell a damn thing because they're already on to the next artist that they're hoping to break that they're going to feel really good about, you know, presenting to the world and not selling a goddamn thing. And then they do it to the next person and the next person and the next person. So you really got to, on some level too, I think it's really, really important if a gallery approaches you to ask them uh, flat out if they've worked with any of your friends um, and then talk to those friends and really, you know, ask honest questions about how good the gallery represents them or not. Uh, you know, that, that can save you a lot of trouble because a lot of people... I've run into even over the years uh, were excited to show in certain galleries because I had shown there and when we first met they would bring that up and I would say ah shit you probably should have uh, asked me first uh, before showing there because I would have told you no because that gallery owner is a crook you know, but it doesn't matter, you know, how how good of a job they do for you. 
um, but they could still use your name in their list of people that have exhibited at their gallery and make themselves look better, even though in reality they didn't sell shit. In fact, they kind of fucked you, <laughs> you know? Um, yeah, so that's, that's just an anecdote. Um, and again, that can be the advantage to showing in a alternative space like a friend's office in the case of uh, the juice uh, uh, warehouse um, you know you you get way more of your money in your pocket for the effort that you put into your artwork and I always think that's should be uh, the, the bottom line in any case uh, is no reason really to give people money uh, for services that you don't really need, you know? Um, now, in October of 2000, I was in a show at a place called The Lab in Baltimore. Now, this was a show <laughs> well outside the range of the mainstream. It was basically a full floor of a warehouse building that some friends were renting. And it was big enough to throw a huge art show. I think they had a skateboard ramp in there. I think there was at least, oh my God, at least 500 people in the, in the place uh, when it was hopping. There could have been quite a bit more. It was a, an immense place, but really uh, off the cuff, uh, very non-professional, very fun. Um, I don't know if any of the artwork sold, but it couldn't have been a more fun opening. And it was really, again, it was the, it was a group of graffiti artists that were getting together to do their own thing. And it was, uh, it was absolute fucking chaos. I remember there were uh, people with, there was a lot of people with guns there. I even saw a guy with a shotgun there because they were worried about running into rivals. It was <laughs> a really, really, really fun party. Uh, but again, well outside the usual gallery system and not a big one for making money. Um, and then in uh, January of 2001, I did what might be considered my first real solo show. It was in a, a tiny little space, basically a hallway behind a skate shop in uh, San Jose. Uh, who's the owner? Oh, I'm trying to think. Uh, Bob Schmelzer. Uh, I was working upstairs tattooing at New School Tattoo at the time. And uh, like I say, uh, Bob had this little space downstairs and was trying to encourage local artists to exhibit their work and, you know, give them a break. Um, I don't think he took any percentage of the sales of the art from us. Again, because it was kind of part of a skate shop, so he had the rent covered with that. I don't think he was really trying to make any money on, uh, on the art stuff. It was more just like a, a friendly favor kind of a thing, which again, can be great. You know, it can be, again, even better than showing in the gallery up the street. Um, that was that was super fun. That was in January 01. And then, let's see. The, oh, and then February of 2002, I had my first solo show in New York City. Um, my buddy Dalek's wife opened a gallery in Williamsburg 
just up the street from where I lived, actually, just, um, t I guess, two years before that, uh, when it was still, uh, I don't know, it, it went through a, a crazy gentrification cycle. It, it got crazy. Um, that was a really big moment. Um, and that was like a real legit gallery uh, gallerist artist kind of relationship where again it was a personal friend it was family really and uh, you know she had this gallery and I knew she would take care of everything um, she did a great job promoting it she got the space all hooked up I definitely think she earned her 50% of the sales of the artwork and again she offered me my first solo show in New York so it was big I, I think I sold it out um it was packed i remember i was so excited so many of my old friends were there um because again i had lived there just two years beforehand so it was just uh, you know uh, my, my new york connections were tight back then i remember the uh graffiti vandal squad cops uh showed up and about half of the uh the crowd split <laughs> which just showed me how many of them were uh, graffiti writers and there was quite a bit of uh, graffiti writing on the pieces in the shows and the characters that I do little cartoon guys were included in a lot of that and it was uh, just kind of me just like the first step into the whole gallery world um, and it was in New York City in Brooklyn um wdwa gallery that was uh that was oh man that was just so 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 fun um then in uh february or no july of 2002 just a few months after the new york show i flew to tokyo with a group of people from upper playground and i guess uh bigfoot was with me and sam flores I guess it was just the three of us that were like the uh, the featured artists in the show for uh, Beams. Uh, it's like like a clothing uh, store, uh, real hip stuff. Beams in in uh, Japan, and we were in there like a t-shirt uh, shop. They had all different kinds of shops all over, but it was like the coolest fucking shit you've ever seen for real uh, in the coolest fucking neighborhood on the planet. <laughs> And that was just so much fun. Again, um, I think it was a 50-50 split of the sale of the artworks. I think all the artworks sold um, in Japan. And, you know, we were, were given a hotel room. They flew us out. They paid for all our travel expenses, food, everything. So... That was like an absolutely fantastic kind of uh, first experience uh, doing a show internationally. And it wasn't a solo, so I was able to kind of, uh, you know, it wasn't all, all on me. You know, I had Bigfoot and Sam with me. And uh, we had such a fucking good time. That was, uh, that wasn't even my first time to Japan. I think I'd already been there once or twice before, but... Um, it's definitely a place to go if, you, if you're an artist and you can get a good show and good representation in Japan it's definitely worth checking out the Japanese folks are very very savvy about art and knowledgeable and uh, they're down to spend a lot of money if it's quality 
it's just it's just so fun um let's see after that i started doing shows at 5024 sf in july of 2002 which was the upper playground brands uh gallery in uh lower haight down on uh, fillmore street kind of a legendary place in our scene it, you know uh, uh matt Ravelli was running the show and uh he had a real i don't know he he just loved what we were doing like more kind of street level stuff uh not so much of that like fine art world um and it just it just clicked and we did uh i ended up doing lots of shows there um and they were always on the level i think again it was a 50 50 split of the sale of the artworks which was fine they did a lot to promote um they really hooked us up nice you know if we ever needed any upper playground stuff or anything it was on the house man that was a that was a super good year that was or a good deal and it ran for years and years and years now in august of 2002 i did a show in denver with uh andy howell and sam flores uh there might have been one other person but it might have just been the three of us uh i had never worked with uh the gallery which was called revolutionis uh I don't know if either the other guys had either, but we were excited just to get together and do a show in Denver of all places too. Uh, in 2002, Denver was a much different place than it is now, uh, but it was still hip and fun and cool and cold. Uh, we were there in August, so it wasn't too cold. It was nice, but in any case, um, it was supposed to be a 50-50 split. I think all of us uh, sold out our artworks <clears throat> and then uh, we're expecting to get uh, a check a good you know 30 to 60 days after the show closes is usually what they tell you as far as payment goes so they can collect from all the the people that bought the artwork and get it all together and just pay you in one big lump sum but in this case uh, the gallery owner took all the money and literally bounced like fell off the face of the planet left denver gone completely gone nobody had any idea how to get a hold of them nothing all of our artwork gone uh i think people were able to get their stuff that they paid for but we never got any money uh and that was that was a, a rough one to eat, you know, to learn like, damn, these people can just burn you. And because we weren't from Denver, none of us, we didn't really have any way to kind of follow up on it and try to like catch this fool slipping, <laughs> you know, uh, to this day, I don't know where that person went, what happened. If, if somebody in Denver remembers that story, and those people, uh, I'd love to know what happened with that. And I'd still love to uh, punch the, the curator in the face. <laughs> um, in February of 03, I, did a sh uh, I was part of a group show at uh, DSL, the, the 55 DSL store in New York City. I think it was uh, arranged through my uh, 
basically my publisher, I suppose I would call him, Roger Gassman. Uh, and I think in that case too, I got the majority of the percentage of the sale of the artworks that I had there. I don't even know if anything sold. It was more of like a promotional thing. Uh, they paid to fly me out to New York City to do the show. I think I DJed vinyl that night too. And they put me up in a hotel for a few nights. So I was able to hang out and see my friends. Um, so in that way, I wasn't too worried about selling the artwork and stuff because they had put up so much money, you know, to get me there and, and whatnot. So, I, you know, I felt like it was a worthwhile uh, deal. Um, then in March of 2003, I did a show in Washington, D.C. at the uh, MOCA, D.C., the Museum of Contemporary Art, uh, District of Columbia. Uh, that one was definitely curated by Roger. Um, he had a big hand in putting together really interesting things. I, I believe that show was uh, me and Espo and uh, what the heck was his name? Uh, there were two other artists that I just can't think of their names offhand right now, but they were really, really fun. Remember, we had a hell of an adventure that night, and uh, one of the guys uh, was into taking pills, and he had a handful of, like, literally, like, 20, 25 different colored pills, and he threw them all in his mouth at once and washed them down with vodka, and I thought... I was going to watch him die right in front of me, to be honest. And he was fine. I had never seen anybody that could eat so many pills and, and not, like, straight up die. <laughs> uh, but that was really fun. I mean, Roger was always good as far as, like, taking care of money, earning his 50% of the, of the cut. Um, I think he paid for the expenses to get us out to D.C., uh, the hotel, you know, all that kind of stuff. I think we even stayed at his place in Maryland uh, one of those nights. But uh, that was that was a really good experience. Um, which was the next ones? Like I did a bunch of uh, group shows through 2003. I did one in Portland. Then I did one in Chicago. Then I did another one... Um, in uh, January of 2004 in San Francisco. And the thing with group shows is, you know, if you've just got some extra pieces that you wouldn't maybe include in a solo show, um, group shows can be great, you know, because you usually only are asking for one to like five pieces at the most usually. Um, so it's kind of a minimal investment. Again, if they don't sell the work um it's only a few pieces that you had tied up in them it's not like a, a solo show's worth of stuff that you kind of got screwed on um let's see next was like march 2004 i did a solo show at misanthropy gallery in vancouver i think that was my first solo show outside of the u.s um, I had done that show in Japan, but that was a group show. So, yeah, I th I'm pretty sure that was the first one out of the States. Vancouver was so fun. Hung out with so many cool graffiti writers there. Uh, got to hang out with Sight, who I'm still really tight with, and painted with him there and also in Toronto quite a few times. Uh, that was great. I think that was another 50-50 deal. 
it was an artist-run gallery, which is another thing I should probably touch on. Some galleries are owned by artists. Um, sometimes they're uh, basically, they give themselves a show every year, which is fine. Um, there's been a few places I've showed at where it's like a group of, of three people and they weren't getting representation in galleries. So they rented their own place and opened a gallery. And so like every, you know, few months, one of them would have a, a solo show and in between they would show the work of their friends. Um, often in those situations, they're really needing to sell the artwork to pay their rent um so those those can be good situations the only downside is is you know a lot of artists aren't great salespeople. often they're not very sociable they don't know how to talk to people they don't know how to explain artwork to regular folks so that they might buy the stuff um whereas like uh, a gallerist or more more of a, a person let's say in sales and art history might be you know, better suited to actually sell the work. Uh, but in any case, misanthropy was really great. Um, everybody there was really, really awesome artists, and I, I had a wonderful time there. And then in uh, April of 2004, I was in my first group show at 111 Minna. Now, 111 Minna was a really famous gallery in San Francisco because they were breaking new artists, uh, especially artists, again, with that kind of street lineage, people like Doze Green. I think he had one of the first shows at 111 Minna, and I remember when he had a studio in the basement, um, just as like the the bar and all that kind of stuff was getting built out. It was a really uh, new thing, new place, a uh, place for uh, a whole different uh generation and and click of artists to to hang 111 minute was just so epic there was so many great nights there you could go there any night and you'd run into fellow artists guaranteed over the years it turned into kind of a hub for the techies and you know dorks and you know not so much a place for the the actual artists to hang out but they continued to show our work and have been big supporters i, I don't know if 111's still around um but if they if they are power to them, because uh, that place fucking kicked ass. Um, let's see, we had more group shows in two thousand four at a few different places in San Francisco. I showed at another one at fifty twenty four SF again, the Upper Playground Gallery. They were such a stable during those years. Um, I was in a, a group show at Brooklyn Projects in LA in two thousand four. Um, I had a two person show. Uh, at Voice 1156 Gallery in San Di here in San Diego in 2005. Uh, I believe that was w the one I did with Shepard Ferry. I was kind of an uh, infamous uh, <laughs> mess. The, the opening was super fun. It was super fucking packed. Um, I believe all, I think all the work sold, and I do believe we all got paid. So it was a, a solid experience in that way. Um, but there was a huge, uh, basically a gang fight in the street outside in front of the gallery while the show was happening. And it was, uh, 
it was incredible. It's quite famous. Uh, I fucking bounced. I didn't know what the fuck was going on or who was involved, so I just rolled. But uh, that was was a wild one. San Diego uh, uh, shows out sometimes that way. In uh, 2005, in January, I did a solo show at the Erotic Museum in Los Angeles. Uh, I don't think it's still around. I don't think it lasted very long. I think it was like a Russian family that owned the place, and they thought they were just going to make a million dollars with this erotic museum. Uh, Again, it was uh, a museum show, so I think I was given a flat fee, if I remember correctly, and was expected just to fill a certain amount of uh, wall space in their upper gallery. And I did a whole series of drawings of uh, women in yoga poses. I guess women and men, to be honest. Uh, a whole series of them. And uh, that w- it went over really, really well. But again, it was nice because I just got, again, a flat fee. Uh, I did the show. And then uh, at the end of it, I got all the artwork back. In uh, 2005... 2005 was a big year because that was the year I did that show at the at the Erotic Museum, and then I had a solo show in Toronto at a place called Nomad that was super fucking fun. That was in May, and then in July of that year, I did my first show in Paris at a cool little streetwear shop called Royal Cheese, and I really didn't know um, much about the shop at all i think some friends had said they were cool and that i would get paid and it wouldn't be a problem um and that was really really fun i think that was uh that would have been my first solo show in europe and again it was just in this little store um it could probably fit like maybe 15 people inside the store to look at stuff at one time so most of the crowd of maybe 100 or so was out in the street and it was a cool mix of graffiti artists and designers and uh, fashion people and really hip and man, it was just so fun. And it was, uh, I knew it was going to be a stepping stone. I just needed to uh, uh, get myself sort of introduced in France and uh, I hoped that uh, things would get popping for me. Remember I did a lot of uh, press while I was there for that show and so I had uh, artwork in French uh, magazines there for quite a while afterwards. Um, and then in uh, November of 2005, I did a so- another solo show in Culver City at uh, Lab 101 Gallery. Um, now this is one of those situations I was think I was mentioning earlier where the gallery owner had some money and didn't really need to sell the artwork to pay for the space. Um, So I don't think, man, I don't really remember how well it sold. Um, To be honest, I think she she may have sold all of it. Um, I think she did. And I remember getting paid and everything was cool. But I did have other friends that showed in the same gallery and uh, the gallerist was unable to to sell the majority of the stuff and it was kind of a, a bummer deal, you know? Um, it was another one of those things where I had a good experience, but if 
a friend had asked me, hey, should I show with these people? I would have still said no, even though I had a good experience because in general, I think, you know, among the other people that were there, they, they didn't. Uh, I think I chalk it up to the fact that I had a, already established a really, really good following in Los Angeles. Even today, a lot of my, uh, I know a lot of statistically, my followers are in the uh, Southern California area. Um, but in any case, uh, let's see then. Oh, then in 2006. Okay. So just the next year, um, I was invited back to Paris, um, this time by, uh, Colette, which was the premier coolest fucking store in Paris, period. Like, all the cool shit, music, books, fashion, uh, electronics. They had a cool little cafe in the bottom. They had like the third floor was like haute couture. I remember seeing Carl Lagerfeld hanging out. It was crazy and it was so fun. And, uh, it was all coordinated by this girl, Sarah. Um, and Sarah had just a really great eye for, cool things and was really keen on especially like what was happening in America like I remember finding stuff at her store that you know was made in the states that I didn't even know existed like somehow she had her finger on the pulse of all that shit was really impressed I had a wonderful show at her store I painted uh, the stairway I remember I met Fafi at that show um that was just so, so fun. And I think what I exhibited was uh, photographs of some homegirls in Albuquerque that I added. Uh, I drew tattoos onto them, which became a series that I continue to this day, actually. But again, that show was super. Uh, Sarah paid for so much, like the flights. The She put me up in a really nice hotel right on Rue Saint Honoré. Um, where the, the shop was, which is just crazy expensive, super fucking nice. Um, and yeah, it was just an absolutely wonderful experience. And I think, you know, also because I had done all that press in France, um, you know, a lot of those magazines traveled all over Europe. So just two days after I had the uh, solo show opening at Colette, I had an opening in London at a gallery called Best. And that was another really great situation. Again, the, the space was kind of small, um, but it was fine. It was really cool. I did a big wall painting of a skull with a bunch of lettering behind it. Uh, hundreds of people came. Um, I fell in love with a girl. It was just, that was an awesome, awesome show. And again, I think that the people at best um, did their diligent best to get everything sold and get me paid and everything was really cool. I remember giving them, um, a thumbs up, um, to a bunch of other artists that asked about showing at best. And I was just like, yeah, they're good people. Definitely do that. Um, a big thing for me with the gallery shows, especially overseas, you know, because I've never asked for a show and just kind of waited for them to come to me. Uh, it's, it's, been great because it's been an opportunity for me to check out these different countries um while i'm there often you know if i did a show let's say in uh 
in Paris. I think uh, Sarah got me a hotel room for two or three nights and I stayed, I think, for two weeks. So there, there were these opportunities for, to let a gallery pay my way to Europe, make sure I was taken care of and whatnot. Um, so it was just such a, a great way to be able to see uh, the world on the back of fine art. But I never ever really counted on the money from the fine art world to pay for my bills because it was so, I don't know, it, was, it just seemed so random you know, what would sell and what wouldn't, or what certain gallerists could sell and what others couldn't. Um, so I just never relied on it. And even to this day, I, I think it's kind of an unreliable um, way for an artist to make a living. And, you know, in a lot of ways, kind of counterintuitive too, which I'll, I'll, I'll get into at some point here at the end. Um, I did a, a group show in Hong Kong in 2006 that was just so fun. Again, I wasn't worried at all about uh, selling the artwork or g getting recouped on that at all because the uh, sponsor of the show, a fashion brand called Hysteric Glamour from Japan, flew me and I think four or five other artists out to Hong Kong um, to do a small gallery show um, that was uh accompanied a, a product release that we did it was me and pushead and stash uh an australian surf brand i can't remember the name of i, th ugh, I think rock and jelly bean was he in that show he might not have been in that one in any case it was really really fun i was only in hong kong for like three days uh some of the most epic adventures of my fucking life uh, I'll get into that trip in specific at some point. Um, but again, that was a, a great way to let the fine art and commercial world uh, pay to uh, send me to Hong Kong to check it out. I was an architecture major in college, and Hong Kong in particular was just outrageous with the, uh, the skyscrapers. I was just blown away, just a, a whole city of skyscrapers. It was, it was incredible. Um, let's see, then later in 2006, yeah, just like two months later, I had a big uh, group show at White Walls Gallery in uh, San Francisco. Now, White Walls was uh, another volatile issue. Initially, when White Walls opened, it was operated by uh, Andres Guerrero, and he was the one curating uh all the all the shows like bringing in the artists his stable of people who were all basically i would imagine 90 percent of us came from a graffiti background but all of us had a distinctive style of artwork outside of graffiti that we had been uh exhibiting and you know we're, uh it was our thing and andres was like i've got this partner justin giarla and we're going to open a gallery, and I want you to show, and I was more than happy to. As long as Andres was at the helm, and he was my contact, everything was fine. I always got uh, the, the money for the, for the artworks. It was no big deal. I could just go down there to the, the gallery itself and just grab a check and go have lunch with Andres. And it was just so fucking cool. But as you'll 
I'll tell you later on as the, the shows at White Walls continued, it, it deteriorated quickly. Um, I did a group show in 2006 in uh, in Melbourne uh, at Outre Gallery, which showed a lot of my friends. Um, they took care of business. I think they sold everything. Uh, I really enjoyed working with them. They make a lot of really cool books. Um, again, in 2006, I did another group show at 5024SF, the Upper Playground Gallery. Um, I did a group. Sh I was in a group show in Philly in 2006, and as well at a group show um, at uh, Monster Children Gallery in Australia in 06 too. Um, let's see. Then I had. There was some, oh, okay. So now I had done the, the show at Colette in Paris in May of 2006. And then in April of 2007, I did my first show with uh, Magda Dani. So at the time, and probably still, she's the foremost uh, exhibitor of kind of street uh based art forms or artists that come from that that circle uh as well as a lot of other stuff frankly she shows all kinds of cool stuff um but that was a big moment for me because uh, again it was like the one summer i guess that would have been oh five i did the little show at the little streetwear shop in paris the next year i did a show at the biggest, best, fanciest streetwear store in Paris. And then the next year, I had gotten the attention of the best gallery of that kind of stuff in Paris. So within those just those three years in Paris, I was able to move my way up. And each level, um, again, uh, they're able to sell to their collector base and sometimes their collector base is used to spending more than what you're used to selling your work for. So in the case of uh, Magda Dani, she had people that were collecting, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of artwork from her gallery every year. And they were used to just going for it. So uh, she was able to, you know, get a lot of money for me, more than uh, I would have asked for in, if it was in a different context in a different country now the one thing t i loved about how she ran her gallery was she would have three different openings so she would have the whole show up in the gallery ready to be seen a good four or five days before the actual opening on the first opening night she, which was usually the wednesday or no that would have been yeah, I guess Wednesday night, she would invite her A-list uh, people. So like uh, people that work at the Louvre uh, Museum, people that were heads of industry, heads of big brands like car companies and banking and people from the French government. Um, and when I had that opening with her it was just like a big dinner party she had a huge single table and everybody sat down and nobody was told who each other were and it was just uh, a, a way to mingle and to you know a really interesting mix of people 
And it also gave me an opportunity to rub elbows with these people and explain to them my life and how the artwork is an expression of my life. And I, of course, was passing joints around and stuff, not knowing that, not really not knowing who I was sitting next to until afterwards, like I said. Um, but that was really great. And then the Thursday night opening was um, the next kind of step down. Her regular collectors that would spend maybe, you know, $5,000 in a single year at the most. Um, but there were lots of them. Uh, and they would come in. And again, like the, the first night, um, a bunch of my artwork sold. Maybe, gosh, maybe even a fourth of it was already sold after that first night. After the second night, at least another fourth, maybe more, was already sold. So by the time the public opening was on Friday, uh, most of the pieces in the gallery already had the little red stickers next to the title saying that they were sold. So there was kind of a, a frenzy almost of those first people in the door to go through and claim what was left. So I'll give it to Magda. She really knew how to sell artwork. And I'm sure she still does. She killed it. Um, really fucking killed it. I learned so much by watching how she operated. She also was really um, influential in us artists that worked for her in getting us published. She worked with Drago uh, Publishing in Italy and did a lot of books with the different people that um, she represented, which was great because you know, those books get around and people see that. And I know a lot of people, the first time they ever saw my work was in one of my books and became fans for life ever since. So I think those are really important. Um, <clears throat> let's see. So I did April. April, I did the show at Gallery Magda Dani of 2007. And then just... A few months later, I was in a group show in Barcelona. And again, they paid for the trip, the the flights and the hotels and everything. I was in a show with maybe uh, eight or nine other artists, if I remember right. Um, if I remember correctly, the artworks that I showed sold and I was paid. Everything was cool. Um, the tricky part with doing those shows back then overseas was getting paid because i don't i don't know when paypal started or you know those kinds of online uh transaction uh apps but sometimes it was really hard sometimes you'd have to do an international transfer directly to your bank account which could be kind of a pain in the ass and they might have to try a few times sometimes you might have to wait um you know weeks for a, a check to show up in the mail international um, now it's a lot easier, uh, but back then it was kind of an iffy situation. Again, if they don't pay you, how are you going to get after them? I mean, they're, they live in a foreign country, <laughs> uh, you know, so it was more a matter of like, at least for me personally, if I was going to go to a place I'd never been before, have everything taken care of. And if I lose a few drawings, you know, over it, so be it, you know. Um, but, I, you know, I think we all kind of have to figure out when we can 
afford to do that or not, you know, and when they're the right opportunities or not. Um, in uh, Later on in 2007, I did my first uh, solo shows in Australia. Uh, the first one was in uh, Melbourne, and then the, just the next weekend was the one in Sydney. Um, those were all uh, coordinated through Monster Children Gallery and... I forget the young man's name that was the curator. He was the fucking coolest. But uh, he took care of me. They took care of me. That was a really fun trip. Uh, definitely got paid for those pieces that I sold. I was able to do a bunch of wall works and a bunch of graffiti. And again, that was just so fun. You know, they, they paid for the flights. Uh, again, the hotels and everything. So it was just another way for me to adventure to Australia on the back of uh, basically the fine art system. Um, and then I did, let's see, more group shows at White Walls. In 2008, I did another solo show, White Walls. At that point, again, uh, my friend Andres was still curating it, and things were running smoothly, and I could recommend uh, the gallery to other artist friends that were getting hit up to do shows there. Uh, in, uh, 2010, uh, I, th I, th I don't know, I'm not sure if, if Guerrero Gallery opened in 2010 or nine, but again, he had a split with Justin, his original partner and opened up his own gallery and Justin ended up getting, uh, into lawsuits cause he hadn't paid so many artists and i think he was looking at jail even I, i'm not sure how that situation panned out but uh i have had my personal share of uh dealing with shady uh gallery people so it might explain some of my hesitance to to work with them even today um but the shows at, at guerrero gallery were great uh, Andres always took care of everything. It was well worth giving him half the money. He really took care of shit. And, uh, yeah, that's that's kind of all I can say about that. Same goes for uh, FFDG, the Fecal Face Dot Gallery. I did my first solo show there in 2012. Um, and I have had nothing but great experiences um, working with Fecal Face. Just you know always no problem getting paid great promotion uh felt like uh the 50 percent i was giving to the gallery was going to a really good place and uh and that's kind of that you know so I, I did a solo show with them in uh july of 2012 and another one in february of 14 and then another one in february of 15 another one in february of 16 uh, and I think 2016 is when uh, FFDG finally had to close its doors. Um, but I had a really good run uh, with them, and uh, I wish they were still around. Uh, in, uh, let's see, I guess, it, yeah, in uh, July of 2014, I had my first uh, solo show at Black Book Gallery in Denver. Uh, I think I was living there by then, and my buddy Jeremy Fish had said that they were cool, and I've now worked with them for, yeah, I guess eight years, and have always been dealt with straight, uh, no bullshit, <laughs> they sell the work well, 
Um, they're able to sell to uh, international collectors, which I usually just kind of don't deal with because shipping that stuff is a pain in the ass. Uh, but they've always been really, really great. Um, so yeah, I did my first solo there in 2014. I did another one in 15 and another one in 16. And uh, yeah, I did another one in 17. Yeah, and then I did a two-person show um, with Jeremy Fish there in 2019. And that's kind of where my list ends. Uh, I should say, you know, in 2016, I did a show in San Francisco at ATAC Gallery. It's a tattoo shop owned by a friend of mine um, that I used to work with in San Jose. And that's that can be a good situation, you know, again, depending on the uh, need of the or, or just, you know, whether they actually come through and sell the work and make sure it gets to the collectors and stuff, because in the case of ATAC, it was a, a really it's it's an amazing tattoo shop. So I'm sure there's no problem paying the rent just from the, the tattoo work that's going on in there. Um, so that can be kind of a sketchy situation for an artist that's going to be showing there, knowing that they don't really have a uh, incentive to uh, sell the artwork because they have to pay the rent with it, you know. But it it did work out fine. Um, I do believe they sold everything and everything was taken care of. Uh, I showed with them a few times. I did a solo there in sixteen and seventeen. Um, yeah, just those two years. Uh, I also had a great solo show with Interstate Gallery in Detroit in uh, 2016 in November. I remember it was super fucking cold, but it was really fun. It was a big gallery. They encouraged me to do some really big pieces, which they were able to sell. Like there was one, I think it was a six foot by six foot drawing, and they had it there for, I think, literally years. And they did eventually send sell it and send me the money kind of out of nowhere. And it was a big check. And I remember being really stoked on that. Um, I'm not sure if Interstate is around. I kind of doubt it is. Um, but that was that was really good. Um, i trying to think if there's other ones. Yeah, and that's kind of where I'm at now. So 2019 was that last show I did at Black Book with Jeremy Fish. Um not sure i'm not sure if i've done another show since then simply because i've got an online store so in i think 2000 what would that have been maybe 17 or 18 when i was living in colorado uh a friend of mine offered to uh build me a website and trade for some artwork and uh he was able to set it up i think it's on squarespace and it's got an online store and that was such a, a huge game changer because now I can just make a drawing and sell it literally within 10 minutes of fish, finishing it. And I can ask for full value for, for the artwork and I keep the full value. Now the, the usual deal with the galleries is that you give them half. Um, so if it's worthwhile um for whatever reason to give them half then it makes sense to continue to work with galleries um but if you're in a situation like i am where i'm able to sell my 
drawings within minutes without any gallery representation whatsoever, it really makes no sense to give somebody half of your money. Um, so in the end, especially now that it's 2022, uh, when a lot of when I run into younger artists that are trying to get a break and are desperate to get shows in galleries, um, the first thing I ask them is if they have their own online store, uh, because if they don't, I think that's the first place to start, uh, not uh, going around to galleries uh, showing your portfolio and whatnot. Uh, to be honest, I don't know if that ever works. Uh, usually, uh, gallerists already have a stable of, say, 12 to 15 artists that they work with regularly, that they make money on regularly, and they're really not trying to, uh, take on, uh, new artists. Um, it, it, something, you know, to, to be, it should be pretty obvious, if, if your work is good and you've developed a great following and you're able to sell your work pretty easy, oddly, that's when galleries will sometimes come knocking because they see that they can get in on that and make some money on your work. And they may make all kinds of promises about, you know, the kind of collectors they can access and whatnot. Um, but, you know, again, if you already have your own online store, uh, I, th I still think that's the way to go. Even if, you know, you're only able to sell something for $400 on your, in your store, um, I think it's better to just sell that for 400 there than have to sell the same exact item in a gallery for twice that much just to get your $400. Now, it can be, you know, th there's two sides to that, though. If a gallery can offer a piece of artwork that you're usually asking $100 for, let's say, and you hang it up in their gallery in a nice frame and the rich people come to see and the gallery thinks I can get 500 for these, I think, and they sell them for five. Well, that's great because now all of a sudden, instead of just the hundred dollars, you're getting 250, you know, which is super. Now, if you continue along that path, <clears throat> and the gallery is able to really maintain your value. If at some point you leave the gallery and you continue to sell your artworks, you can now sell them for the full price that the gallery was asking for them because you know that's the new value of your work. Um, I hope that kind of makes sense. I'll give you another example about how auctions work. Now, I went to an auction that I was invited by my friend uh, uh, John Perello. He goes by John One. He's an artist from New York, but he's lived in Europe for most of his life in Paris. Um, quite the Parisian guy. 
But uh, he took me to a, an auction, and one of his paintings was up for auction. Now, it, it came up, and the bidding started, and it turned into a bit of a bidding war. And uh, he explained to me as it was developing that one of the people bidding was his gallery who had actually put the piece up for auction, which sounds counterintuitive, right? Like, why the fuck would this gallerist put up a piece for auction and now he's going to buy it back for way more? That doesn't make any sense. But check this out. So that's exactly what happened. Let's say it was one of John's paintings. I forget how much it was worth. Let's say it was worth 10 grand. Uh, through the bidding war, it ended up reselling for 15 grand. So now it's, it's set a precedent. It's on paper. It's official. This piece by this artist uh, painted at this size canvas is, now, is worth 15 grand. So now if the gallery has 30 of his older paintings that are the same size in their back catalog, now when they try to sell those off, all of them now are worth 15 grand. You see what I mean? So there's times when working with a gallery, if, if your bottom line is making money, uh, yeah, you can find a good salesperson. You know, somebody that's going to work the angles like that. You know, like myself, I think a lot of you, our bottom line is not making money. Uh, for myself, the bottom line is making enough money that I can pay my bills and have a bit of a cushion just in case of accidents, in case once one of my vehicles dies or I can't work for a few months because of an injury, I'm not going to be fucked, you know? But it's not about just the accumulation of wealth. What I'm trying to do is make enough money that I have the free time to be able to draw and be creative without having to stress about money and all that kind of shit. That's way more valuable to me than trying to uh, exploit rich people. Um, also, like, I as a graffiti writer... I'm always a little circumspect of the general population and people's tastes. Um, I feel like as graffiti artists, we really analyze and develop taste and style and are very critical of what's good and what's not. And I don't know. It's just like the the whole gallery world and the museum world I think is slowly but surely going away um, it's just not as necessary now as it was any artist can have an Instagram now and develop a following and show their work and be able to link to their online store and make a living it's easier now than it's ever been. Um, and I think if uh, you're going to work with galleries at this point, uh, it's really got to be a situation where they're bringing something to your table, not you bringing something to them. You know, a lot of galleries are going to want to 
have you uh, advertise and do all the legwork for them and pass your followers on to them. But it should be the opposite. You shouldn't have to advertise for your shows and galleries at all. At all. They should be the ones providing a collector base that you're not already getting to through your usual social media outlets. Just something to think about. Um, be cautious out there in dealing with galleries and really uh, try to figure out if, uh, if it's a good deal and if it's not, just move on. Thanks for listen, listening to me rant for an hour and a half about galleries. I appreciate it. Peace. All right. Actually, hold up. I've got one more story. So in, uh, I think, the summer of 2009, uh, I was invited to do another, uh, I guess it was a two-person show at Magda Dani Gallery in Paris. Um, it was with uh, my buddy Dalek, and uh, I was really looking forward to it. And uh, I was living in Albuquerque, New Mexico at the time. I had a whole bunch of cool work ready to go. A lot of it was unfinished because I was going to spend a whole week in Paris uh, just before the opening, uh, and I wanted to finish the stuff on site, you know, really kind of get a feel for Paris and let it come through in the work. Um, so what I decided to do was fly to New York City first for a week, and I stayed there. And then fly to Paris uh, for a week. And then uh, fly back to New York and stay just one night. And then fly back to Albuquerque. Just to break up those flights because those internationals can be fucking gnarly. Um, so I had a great week in New York City. I stayed with my buddy uh, Diego and his wife Lolly. Got to cruise around a bunch and see all my old friends. And... Uh, then I flew to Paris, and, you know, every time I had worked with uh, Magda Dani, everything was taken care of, um, you know, to the T. Like, she fucking handled it. And I had been to Paris a few times um, since uh, the first time I showed with her, and she knew I had lots of friends in Paris, um, and I think she simply assumed that I would arrive at the airport and I would already have friends there ready to pick me up, um, you know, and she could catch up with me later. Uh, but that we hadn't talked about that. We hadn't really talked about anything. I had assumed, uh, like usual, I would arrive in Paris and she would be there personally to greet me and give me a ride uh, to the hotel or wherever I was staying, and then I would personally hand off the artwork, which in that case was in three tubes, probably 20-some drawings, worth probably about, I don't know, fifteen to $20,000 in total. Uh, so I get to Paris Airport. I get through customs, no problem. I get out into the lobby and I start looking around for Magda and I don't see her. So I find a seat nearby, um, the exit lounge there and just sat and watched 
for a long time and uh just got really sad <laughs> to be honest i had flown all the way from new york i was all excited and i get to paris and there's nobody there and uh yeah i was just super super bummed so i waited for honestly probably three hours maybe even four and hadn't heard anything um now my cell phone didn't work in europe at the time uh so that was kind of a pickle but i did have uh the number i had the forethought as someone who's old enough to remember pre-internet i had written down two phone numbers uh one for the gallery and uh one for uh my friend uh alex that lives in uh paris and uh so i called the gallery and i think i got their answering machine and i just left a message saying hi this is mike giant i'm in paris i'm at the airport i don't know where to go magda's not here i'm just wondering where she is i have the artwork here with me uh please come get me you know that was it uh and then uh i think i called alex and i think i had to leave a message on his cell phone too just saying hey alex i just got to paris um but shit's fucked up i don't know where i'm supposed to go i think i'm gonna change my flight to just return to new york tonight and i think that's what i told him and then that's exactly what i did i went to the airline and I asked them if I could get on the next flight back to New York. And they said that there was one leaving that evening, probably six hours later. And I, and it, I had to pay extra money, of course, to change it. So I did. Um, I didn't really know what else to do. <laughs> and I didn't want to basically be homeless in Paris. Uh, so... I w just sat in the airport and I was just bummed. I was going to have to sit there. I think in, in all in all, I sat there for 12 hours. And uh, at a certain point, maybe about six hours in, uh, two interns from the gallery show up who I'd never met before. It's a young French guy and girl. And they were so excited to that they found me, I could tell. And uh, they were like, hey, we're here. We can take you. We're so sorry. Magda's not even in the country right now. She thought you had everything taken care of. And, you know, you guys could catch up when she got back from China. And I was like, fuck, no, we didn't talk about any of that. And I've already changed my flight to return home. And the interns were like, fuck, no way. You can't go back. You have to come with us or we're going to get fired. And I was like, well, sorry, it's got nothing to do with you guys, but you're getting fired because I already changed the flight. I'm not changing it again. That would be ridiculous. I've already lost so much money. I've been sitting here for six hours not knowing anything until you guys just showed up who I've never met. So, nah, I'm going to bounce. And they were like, fuck, we're totally going to lose our jobs. <laughs> but I gave them the artwork. Um, so the show would go on. And that artwork was framed and it was shown. Um, 
again, a lot of it wasn't finished. A lot of it wasn't signed. Um, you know, but the, but it did go on. Uh, it just went on without me. <laughs> now, probably about seven hours in, uh, my friend Alex shows up. A big surprise. I wasn't expecting to see him at all. I'm so bombed. <laughs> and he... He just, uh, he's, you know, it's just one of those moments like where he really needed a friend and there he is. The only fucking phone number for a friend that I had in Paris and he got the message and he drove all the way from across Paris uh, to come see me. And uh, of course he begged and pleaded with me just to stay in Paris and just stay with him for the week and fuck the gallery and fuck all of it, you know. And just hang out with him, like, because we're, we're tight, you know? And I was just like, dude, I'm sorry. I got bombed and mad, and I just, I changed the flight. So he's like, all right, well, come outside with me to the car park. And so we went outside, and uh, we were arm in arm and just so stoked to see each other. We were so looking forward to hanging out for that whole week. And uh, we got to his car, and he had a big fucking blunt rolled. <laughs> God bless his sorry. <laughs> <laughs> and we got super fucking baked in his car and had a good laugh and kind of calmed down from the whole situation and he's quit pestering me about staying in Paris and understood you know I had my integrity or whatever and was just like fuck this I'm going back and we had a really really good chat and it was awesome I was just so pumped to see the dude and anyway so uh, he split, he had to go home to his family, and that night I boarded a flight back to New York City, just like that, and uh, got back, it was an overnight flight, I arrived in New York City in the morning, I remember uh, turning on my uh, cell phone once I was back stateside, and immediately called my friend Diego, and was like, hey man, is your uh, air mattress still got air in it uh, where I was staying before I left for Paris and he was like yeah actually like where the fuck are you you know I thought you were in, aren't you in Paris and I was like nah dude I'm, I'm back in New York <laughs> he couldn't fucking believe it just laughed his ass off and was like yeah of course you know how long do you need to stay and I was like a whole nother week and he was like no problem <laughs> so we met up that night and I told him the whole fucking story. And uh, I actually had a really, really good time in New York City because uh, everybody everybody that I knew thought I was in Europe and thought my I was out of cell phone service and probably internet as well. And so I was just off the planet basically for the whole week. So I spent that week in New York City and really barely told any of my friends that I was there and just enjoyed myself kind of being alone and going to museums and galleries and parks and whatnot and I was stoned the whole time it was a really really good trip I, I wasn't too mad that I didn't uh, pull off the Paris trip you know and needless to say you know I haven't uh, spoken with uh, Magda Dani <laughs> since that whole debacle uh, in the airport there uh, but uh if any of you are interested in showing with her, 
uh, I can vouch for her. She's she's awesome, and she'll take care of you. <laughs> I just had that one fucked up instance, but uh, it's one of the best gallery stories that I have. I hope I can save this on the end of this podcast. Thanks for listening. <laughs>